The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Born to be Breastfed with your host, Marie Biancuso. Our program aims to help you bust through the breastfeeding myths and ensure you and your baby enjoy the breastfeeding journey. Over the next hour, we'll help you figure out how to overcome the obstacles you might encounter and how to incorporate breastfeeding into your busy life. Now, here is your host, Marie Biancuso. Hi, everyone. I'm Marie Biancuso. I'm your host for Born to be Breastfed on the Voice America Health and Wellness channel. And tonight, I have the good fortune to be here with a woman that I've always considered sort of a remote friend, even though I haven't actually seen her in years. And so I would like to welcome Barbara Hotelling. Barbara, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Marie. Barbara and I sort of go back a long ways. Uh, Barbara was one of the initiators or founders of Kim's. And I'll let Barbara give you just a short intro about Kim's. But Barbara has been extremely active with Lamaze, Kim's, and other organizations as related to birth practices. And so um, my my first encounter with her was at Kim's, but let me tell you, as I bust the myths about breastfeeding, Barbara busts the myths about childbearing practices. And in case you are pregnant or about to deliver, or maybe you've had your your baby already, trust me, these practices that are related to labor are absolutely related to breastfeeding. So we're in for a really fun time. Barbara's a fun woman and a mountain <laughs> of knowledge. So Barbara, tell us quick, quick, in 30 seconds or less, tell us about Kim's. Kim's was formed by some wise uh, women at Lamaze International and specifically Judy Lothian they decided that it was time for all the organizations who were all upholding evidence-based care to lay down their weapons and unite and form one voice. And so it was an organization of organizations, a coalition of organizations. And um, it has worked so well. You know, we're, we're collaborating on um, conferences, presentations, papers, People are working together to get birth back to the woman. Well, I loved that part about lay down your weapons. Boy, that got my attention. And, of course, for those of you who have not already figured that out, one of those wise women uh, at the front of the line there in, in making so much progress with Kim's was, of course, Barbara Hotelling herself. So, Barbara, when we first talked about this show, I asked you to list the myths as you see them. And, of course, you had way more than we could ever cover in a short show. But um, let's start a little bit 
with IV fluids in labor because this drives me out of my living mind and it's one thing that I have not addressed at all on the show. Some of these topics we've we've sort of addressed, but I haven't talked about that and I know that there's a lot of literature around IV fluids in labor. Can you speak to that? Yes, and there's so much literature we won't be able to get to all of it on this show. I mean, there's <laughs> so much information the IV fluids that women receive, they used to receive uh, dextrose 5 in water. And yep. dextrose 5 in water uh, just has a horrible uh, effect of pumping up the sugar in the mother. When you pump up the sugar in the mother, you are pumping up the sugar in the baby. So once the baby is born, <clears throat> that sugar falls off. The baby is seen as hypoglycemic, and the worst-case scenario is separated from its mother, taken to NICU, and observed for a long time. When it was Absolutely. actually the IVs that, that did it. Now, They're Barbara, all, I... Oh, excuse me. I haven't worked labor and delivery in a while. Tell me, uh, D5W, dextrose uh, 5 and uh, water, was something that we used in what I would think to be the, the old days, but are you telling me they're still using that? No, they've mostly changed to lactated ringers. Oh, okay. Uh, Marie, you know, oh. with all the, um, the wacko practices across the U.S., as evidenced by our high cesarean rate, I can't say that everybody is using lactated yeah. ringers. Yeah, because I was thinking that about the time that I left labor and delivery, we were using the lactated ringers, but I do agree with you. Uh, sometimes I'm doing a course and somebody tells me something and I'm saying, wait a minute, you're not truly doing that, right? You're like 20 years out of date and I try to find a, diff- uh, a diplomatic way to tell them, oh, whoa, are you behind the times? <laughs> so I agree yeah, with you. I think are out of date. Out there. So. Yeah, there could be. There's, so, there's another problem with the yep. IV fluids that um, the mother gets a whole slew of fluids in her body and there's a symphony of hormones that work towards birth, which means that the mother can generally, most mothers, like 90 to 95%, can give birth without any interference. Um, But these get interfered with when you give large uh, amounts of fluid because then it waters down the hormones. And then they have to use synthetic things that actually shut the hormones off. Absolutely. There's a third problem with it in that it causes engorgement. And women who have had babies may have experienced engorgement when their breasts got really full. Their baby was really frustrated because the baby wasn't able to get a good latch, wasn't able to feed. And that's what happens when you give a mother lots of fluids in labor. Are they necessary? Usually not. If they're medically necessary, you use them. But um, these are routine practices yes. which really interfere with, with the, the golden hour after birth where the mother and baby should be skin to skin and the baby within 20 to 30 minutes finds its own way to the breast and breastfeeds successfully. Barbara, I want to back you up a little bit on the the engorgement, you know, uh, the classical engorgement is actual, and I was careful to say classical engorgement is really uh, the milk, but it, we've gotten to the point here where we have these women that not only have their milk uh, coming in, but they have at the same time this this gigantic 
swelling of the breasts with fluid and then the nipples are full of fluid and oh by the way their fingers and toes and everything else are, are full of fluid and, and it oh, makes by the way what the the their fingers and toes uh, are also full of fluid meaning the mother's fingers and toes you know you really see these people yes. so so swollen up and it's so legs difficult look like elephant legs yes they? elephant legs yes there you go <laughs> And uh, it's so difficult for the baby to grasp the breast when he's got all of this extra fluid. And I always like to emphasize to mothers that that's not really the milk, that's the fluid. And uh, when that goes away, it doesn't mean our milk has gone away. It just means our fluid has gone away. And so I just want to make sure that our listeners are really clear about that. Barbara, one of the other things, and you know, I could just talk for ages and ages and ages about this because it's one of my pet peeves. One of the reasons it seems to me that historically we have given women uh, IVs in labor is that we've let them have nothing by mouth. I know that there is uh, no research to support that. I absolutely know that. But um, would you like to get on your soapbox about that? uh, Well, we know that certainly one of the rationales is, well, the mother might have a cesarean section. Okay, well, with a 32% cesarean rate in the U.S., uh, I hear that. But uh, can you speak to us a little bit about the downside of not having any oral fluids or or food? Yes. Uh, The downside is that you're running a marathon and you're doing it on (laughs) an empty stomach. And you're... If you're at home during early labor and up until about six centimeters, then you have the opportunity and the desire to get food and fluids. I will tell you there is some good news. Um, ACOG and the Society for um, Maternal Fetal Medicine in oh, March yeah. of two, four, two, 2014 came yep. out with uh, recommendations. Yep. And one of those was that uh, you don't need to fast in labor. They are recommending, you know, a light meal, but I have a video of a woman asking for uh, scrambled eggs at eight centimeters. Her labor is called. It was a home birth. She gets her scrambled eggs. She goes on to give birth beautifully. Well, you know, Barbara, I can only say this now because I'm actually not working in the hospital, but I used to sneak food to women who were in labor, and they probably would have fired me if they would have known it. But, you know, honestly, I I just felt like it was so inhumane, and I'm delighted to see that that new statement came out, and I know that you've probably addressed that in your own book, but I just want to say what we were saying a few minutes ago, which is even though we have this new statement uh from the the experts, so to speak, that doesn't mean that's going to get implemented today or tomorrow. And so when we come back from break, I would like you to talk with us a little bit about how the woman can be her own best advocate or how her doula or partner or somebody else can be an advocate for uh, helping her with these kinds of things. Uh, before we go to break, I would also just like to say thank you to our sponsor today, who is Mamava or, excuse me, Mama Va, a, they create a modular suite offering nursing mothers a safe, clean, and beautifully designed space to pump or nurse when mothers are away from home or work. Visit mamava.com. That's Mamava, M-A-M-A-V-A.com today. Don't go away. I'm Marie Biancuto. I'll be back with my guest, 
Barbara Hotelling right after this message. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Do you enjoy listening to Marie Biancuzo? Do you think your staff would enjoy listening to Marie? As the past president of Baby Friendly USA, Marie currently offers baby-friendly training programs, online only, live only, or a combination of live and online education. If you are tired of listening to a boring lecture in a dark room, watching bullet point slides with a brief chance for questions at the end, come and enjoy a truly interactive learning online or live program with Marie. Call Marie today at 703-787-9894 to find an option that works for your staff. Breastfeeding Outlook, owned and operated by Marie Biancuzo, is America's premier provider of breastfeeding education. If you're a nurse, lactation consultant, dietitian, midwife, physician, doula, or other professional, Breastfeeding Outlook is your source for SERPs, nursing contact hours, and CEUs to meet your certification or licensure requirements in all 50 states. Join Marie at a seminar in one of many U.S. cities or learn online. Marie has helped thousands to pass the IBLCE exam on the first try, and she can help you, too. Call to find out how to get an easy payment plan for Marie's IBLCE exam prep course. And if your hospital is seeking the baby-friendly hospital designation, we can help you with that, too, through expert training and value-based consultation. We have a variety of packages to meet your needs without breaking your budget. Sign up for a live or online course or inquire about training today. Please visit breastfeedingoutlook.com or call us at 703-787-9894. Evidence for your practice starts here. Visit breastfeedingoutlook.com or call us at 703-787-9894. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Born to be Breastfed. To reach Marie Biancuso or her guest on today's program, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to radio at borntobebreastfed.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, everyone. I'm Marie Biancuto. I'm your host for Born to be Breastfed on the Voice America Health and Wellness channel. I would like to welcome back my guest, Barbara Hotelling, who has been here to talk with us about labor practices. And by the way, uh, I just want to say that... for those of you who are listening, you can tell we never rehearse these shows. And so uh, Barbara had so much to tell us that I, I think you're going to have to want to have her back again because she's got so much good information. We can't begin to cover all the things that we had planned to talk with you about tonight. Um, I would also like to say that if you have questions for Barbara, please address them to radio at borntobebreastfed.com. I will take a look at them, but if I can't answer something fairly simple, I will pass that along to Barbara. I'm sure she'll be happy to answer your questions. We always like to hear from our listeners. 
We also like to have our listeners subscribe. So if you are listening to this live and you say, look, at you know, 6 o'clock Eastern is just not really a good time for me. I wish I could hear this some other time. Remember that we are also, as a podcast, on iTunes, Stitcher, and tuned in. And I would also suggest that a really easy way to get all of these uh, shows is to simply subscribe. So if you know how to subscribe uh, for any of the paid stuff, this is simple, except that you subscribe and you don't have to pay anything. Now, how cool is that? So, Barbara, before we went to break, and I know that we don't have a lot of time for this, but I'm always very distressed that here's this mother who is hungry and thirsty, and especially when she's in very early labor. Uh, what would you tell a woman to tell the staff about how she'd really like something to eat and drink? How Can you give us a sound bite or two? Yes. And I would also um, add just a little bit about choosing the place where you give birth and oh, the yeah. providers who are going to support you. Because if your philosophy Critical. and theirs matches, you're not going to have to have this fight. I agree. When you, when you are stressed and you're worried about us versus them, your stress hormone levels go up and your oxytocin levels, which are the feel-good hormones that actually cause the uterus to have a nice, strong contraction are going to wither, and so it, it makes sense to get all this done ahead of time. But I'll uh, I think that, that's great uh, advice. I will tell you about my son and daughter-in-law. So they've had two babies, and both times I have not been able to be there. And the first time I was actually on clinical rotations with nursing students, and so I was a texting doula. So uh-huh. he writes and he says, um, my daughter-in-law says that, the, um, the belts hurt, and I uh, texted back, uh, she's two to three times more likely to have a cesarean with continuous monitoring, continuous yep. fetal monitoring. That's what Absolutely. they were referring to. The next text I get is the belts are off. <laughs> the, same way, the same way for, um, uh, in the second birth, it was the uh, idea of eating and drinking. She wanted something substantial to eat and drink. She didn't want a steak, but she would like, you know, something, jello or whatever. uh, And um, this was like after I had learned about this um, ACOG, which is the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, and they're the only game in town, so their rules sort of stick. And they had published this paper that said it's okay to eat and drink in labor. Forty years ago when anesthesia was new, it was not okay because it could really cause the women to choke and die. But now that we have much better anesthesia, um, it's not a problem. So I uh, told them, you know, I texted them again, not all that information, but the gist of it was that a new statement is out okaying it, and I mentioned ACOG, which everybody will shrivel at if they hear it, and um, so they caved, and she got some food. I would say that if you can't have a texting doula, you should, in fact, a a real doula would be better to help you figure out what are the questions you need to ask to see if you're in the right place with the right people. And then to get you up to speed on um, what the literature says. What does the evidence say? Because not everybody is up to speed on that in the hospitals. Up to speed is a... I, I'm 
totally with you there, Barbara. And even though you and I are aware of those ACOG and other type statements, uh, my experience is that sometimes it takes years before the hospital is up to speed. And I would, I would agree with you. One of the best ways to avoid that fight is to really scope out your birth facility in the first place. And secondly, to have a doula. You probably know we've already had a few doulas on this show. And I, I really, well, I really encourage doulas, but I usually find that I'm kind of talking to the wind on that. For those of you who are listening, I would just like to remind you that <clears throat> Barbara is not being your medical advisor here. Barbara is giving you information. You certainly need to talk this over with your provider, but you need to have that discussion early in the game armed with the information that Barbara has given you here tonight. So, Barbara, you gave me a perfect lead-in for talking about electronic fetal monitoring. Now, let me set the stage here. I'm not opposed to fetal monitoring. I used to give a two-day course in fetal monitoring to uh, tertiary care facility registered nurses, but I did that because I believe that if you're going to do fetal monitoring, you have to do it right, but... I believe that the vast majority of patients are have more downside with fetal monitoring than they do upside. Barbara, what's the fact and what's the myth? Okay, the myth is that every woman needs fetal monitoring because then we can tell when her baby gets into trouble. The yep. facts are that um, intermittent monitoring is better. It leads to fewer cesareans, and as I said, two to three times more cesareans with continuous fetal monitoring. There are several reasons for that, um, but the facts are that uh, ACOG and other organizations, medical organizations, physician organizations, say that it Intermittent is just fine unless there's a medical reason. And that's where all of this comes in, Marie. When you, you didn't get to decide who got fetal monitoring or not. That was an order on the patient's right. chart. That's right. That's but absolutely right. You, you, you know, 90% of women, even up to 95, do not have problems that would require continuous electronic fetal monitoring. Mm-hmm. The doctors feel that it saves them, uh, in lawsuits. In the court. However, when a study had doctors going back and reading their own fetal monitor strips at three months and six months, they got different conclusions each time. Oh, wow. So wow. it does not protect them in court. And, and there's no reason to um, kill these trees and have all these fetal <laughs> monitor strips because it will only harm you in court, actually. Well, you know, one of the things that I always asked was, how many times does the woman have to prove herself? I can remember one time looking at a strip where they had monitored the woman for 14 hours or some incredible thing, and she had all of these reactive strips. I mean, presuming that 20 minutes is is a reactive strip, you know. And I'm thinking, how many times does she have to prove herself? 20 minutes and 20 minutes and 20 minutes and 20 Come on, come on, come on. And so I think it's really interesting that you're telling us that not only is it a myth about protecting her baby, but the the continuous monitoring doesn't protect the doctor from the lawsuit either. Is that what you're saying? That's what I'm saying. And actually, uh, to go back a little bit, it takes about a nanosecond to introduce any technology into obstetrics. And uh, (laughs) it does not have to be proven. It does not have to be tried. (laughs) 
And yep. yet it takes about 17 years to bring everybody up to speed that that wasn't such a good idea. Let's not do it anymore. Barbara, you are so right because I remember that that is exactly how fetal monitoring got introduced in my life. It's like all of a sudden somewhere it just came as some doctor went to some workshop and they said how great it was and all of a sudden we were all doing it. And And there was no trial of those monitors. There was no testing. And as you, you know, as you experienced, it took so little time to get them in everywhere. And even now we're doing that. And what's the effect on the birth that interferes with breastfeeding? The mother's on her back. She's not moving around because every time she does, the nurses come in because the baby moves around. And they've got to readjust that part of the monitor that listens to the baby's heart rate. So the the mother feels like a bad patient, and she stays still. Um, Of course, she doesn't have any food and fluids. Being on your back is the worst position. Absolutely. It It causes the most pain. And if you stay there for two to four hours, the baby, every time the contraction pushes the baby down, it's pushing the baby down on that aorta, that garden hose that is providing the baby with oxygen and nutrition and shutting it off. You do that for enough times, then you're going to get um, uh, fetal monitoring that shows the baby's in distress. When if we had just let the mother get up and walk around, eat and drink at will, um, her baby would be fine. Barbara, I'm sure you don't have the answer to this, but these studies are, there are so many studies about the importance of ambulation during labor and so many studies about the importance of the vertical position and so many studies about not, basically, that being on your back is the worst physiologic position. So, uh, why do you think it is that we just choose to ignore all of that research, because the research is out there. It's out there. Why do we ignore that? I think for one reason is that it's hard for, um, well, okay, I'll go back and I'll say probably my top reason is you attended all those internal education sessions, right? How many were on normal birth? I forgot what you called Uh, them, but when they, you know, the training for the nurses, how many were on technology, new medications, yeah. and all that kind of stuff? And how many were on how Normal. to support a woman in labor? But yeah, I'd A1, say zero. Lamaze, <laughs> yeah, A1 and Lamaze have incredible, and ICEA have incredible, um, they have education for nurses so that they can be up to speed and they can make the changes. They're the gatekeepers. Wow, it's just, I was also thinking too, as you were saying how we had fetal monitoring in a nanosecond, I was thinking how many years does it take to get a pill approved by the FDA? Years, we're it depends. Years. <laughs> well, sometimes it's faster than that, and then we found out we've done the wrong thing, but yes, you're yeah. right. Well, it, but it, it's just, there was no thought into it just seemed like a good idea i guess uh so we know that we got way more on this agenda than we can get through but help us before we go to the break help us to get our uh palette wet for uh how does an assisted delivery and in my world that would be like a vacuum or a forceps uh if you think it's something else tell us 
uh, how does that affect the the wellness of the baby and ultimately breastfeeding? Oh, it, it really interferes with breastfeeding. It can um, cause lifelong problems for the baby. These are things that you do not want to use unless absolutely necessary. And um, they're recommended now in this statement I've been referring to by ACOG and Society for um, Maternal Fetal Medicine. Um, It's recommended to try those before you go to a cesarean. So, you know, I'm conflicted on that. I I don't have any research or any way to judge that one. But when you put pressure on the top of the head, um, you're putting, you're gonna, the baby's gonna have a swelling at the top of the head. When the baby's born, the baby has had to come through this narrow, um, bony structure, and for that, the head, all these little suture lines, which means the bones are not fused together to allow the baby's bones to sort of scrunch up and allow it to come out. Right. And these right. then, so those are settling in. The baby really sort of has a, a little headache at birth, and so the breast milk that is so sweet, and um, it decreases the pain. But the baby's going to have a swelling on the top of its head, too. And so that's causing the baby pain, which may interfere with breastfeeding because the baby may just not feel like feeding. The, uh, that, the forceps cause pressure on facial nerves and they can actually damage those, the cranial nerves and, um, you know, I can list all these names and nerves, but I had to write them down to do that so I won't bore everybody <laughs> with those. <laughs> well, basically but what the you're saying. Fibers and, and that control the tongue can be interfered with and that tongue is what makes the breast milk come into the baby's mouth. Right, right. Uh, as I like to say, when you start messing with that uh, facial nerve, which is cranial nerve number seven, basically what you're doing is you're impeding the baby's ability to get milk into his own mouth, and that in and of itself is a problem. So uh, people think that it's like, oh, well, it's just about labor, but it really isn't. Uh Barbara, can you, uh, I don't really know this stuff about how the forceps affect babies. Uh, apparently, you said lifelong. Clue us in a little bit. This is, I don't know this part. Okay, so what were you, ask me again. Uh, what's the relationship between an assisted delivery and some sort of lifelong difficulty in the one minute that we have left oh. here? Okay, so when you are disturbing the nerves in the baby's face, um, uh-huh. you're messing with, and you're you could be like severing those nerves. You could be putting uh, so much pressure on it that um, they don't pulse, they don't connect the sensations to the brain anymore, and that's when you have a problem. Um, we see babies who ha- look like they've had a stroke because of forceps. And so if you're going to have forceps or vacuum, if if you're going to choose to have those, and you you would like to know that the provider has used them 100,000 times. However, you're here, you're getting ready to push your baby out, they're trying to decide between a cesarean and this, 
and you are working hard, you're in your zone, and you are totally incapable of asking these questions. So again, ask up front. Uh, you know, I have to tell you, though, I was uh, once involved with a patient that uh, the the doctor started putting the forceps on, and at the top of her lungs, she screamed, what are you doing? And he said, oh, I'm just putting some forceps on here. And she screamed, you get the bleep out of there. <laughs> That I is um, unconsented interventions, and this absolutely. is also a big problem. I've but, seen it so many times, Marie, and you have too, where they just go and do something yep. and assume that, you know, because yep. some mother signed some form that she gave consent to everything, but she did not. Oh, no way. I just, boy, I wanted to stand up and applause. I want uh, an applaud. I wanted to say, you know... Good for you. You are my hero. But I just couldn't believe. At the top of our lungs, she screamed, you get the bleep out of there. And, oh, wow. Yeah, I was just, I love that it, was just, too. But I, uh, I love it. why do we force women into that position? Position. Why she just right. go into her zone and give birth and have the baby put on her chest and breastfeed? Um, it's not yeah. that difficult. No, it, it's not. I think that sometimes we just need to get out of the mentality that we are in charge. Now, Barbara, if you and I were in charge, it might different be a bit different, but I guess we're still not there. <laughs> if you and I were in charge, there would be strong, informed consent, and there would be oh, shared yes. decision-making, and there would be evidence-based practice, and all would be well. Barbara, talk to us a little bit about, uh, and we're not going to go to break. We we had a little bit of a technical issue getting started, so we're okay on the break part. But um, tell me this, uh, what about some medications in labor? And I don't mean pain medications. That could be a whole show in and of itself. But talk to us about other medications that you think affect the baby and the baby's alertness, uh, the baby's ability to breastfeed and so forth. Okay, so first of all, the fluids that are administering those medications, because you want them into the mother to give her whatever uh, she needs, and then you want it out of, uh, and then it also goes to the baby. So you want to uh, get it out of the baby as fast as possible. So that's why it's usually given with IV fluid. And the right. medications that um, we give, to babies, uh, especially with epidurals, they do a whole host of things. They just, um, where to start with this? <laughs> okay. so, did I put you uh, on the spot uh, there, Barbara? Or, or, or yeah, did I need the, to just give you a week to talk about it? Uh, no, I, I probably need a week. But I will say generally that all of these medications, the Demerol, the Stadol, the Nicentol, the Nubane, all cross the placenta and can affect the baby. Agreed. So the baby can be born sleepy. That first golden hour after birth is when you want mom awake and aware and baby awake and aware, and baby can actually crawl up to the mother's nipple by if. Uh, smelling its hand that still has amniotic fluid on it and then finding the nipple that smells like amniotic fluid because of some secretions there. The baby knows how to breastfeed. But if the baby has these medications in its body and they don't clear out soon because the baby's liver, which breaks down medications and gets rid of them through the bladder and through the urine, they, the liver doesn't work well for the first three days. 
And so you've got some stored up medications in there making this baby too sleepy to adequately latch. And, and especially you won't see these babies crawling up to the breast, locating the nipple, and starting to suckle very well. And by the way, for those of you who are listening, Barbara is, what everything that Barbara has just said about these medications is absolutely documented in the literature. But I also want to say that this is my personal experience. We're not just talking here studies or academe. And Barbara, I'll give you the floor here, but I'm going to assume that you have seen with your own eyeballs this exact thing. I have, and I, you know, it just breaks my heart. The mother wants to try to breastfeed, and yet because she was on her back with continuous fluids and continuous fetal monitoring, her back started killing her, and um, so she was encouraged to have an epidural. Maybe she tried some of these drugs for a little while, but maybe she went to the epidural. And so then you've got this cascade of interventions, a snowball effect that leads yep. to a mother who has decreased sensations and her the hormones of uh, getting the milk to the baby, prolactin and oxytocin, have been wiped out by the medications and the fluids. You've got a whole host of things intervening, and so you've got to work really hard. Well, this mother is going home in two days because of the fluids. Um, her milk doesn't come in maybe for another couple of days and she's at home and she has no breastfeeding support and so the baby's crying, she's crying she got a formula sample from the hospital or the doctor's office sent her a whole case of formula (laughs) and so she goes to the formula and so when you use to get milk out of the mother's breast you have to have the baby suckle it and if yes. the baby's suckling formula, the baby is not sucking at the breast, and so her milk goes away. So, Barbara, here's the thing. Um, as you probably know, I do consults for hospitals that are on their way to uh, achieving the baby-friendly hospital designation. And a lot of the times, one of the things that they want to know is, well, how come we're stuck, or how about this, this isn't working, and we're doing all this good breastfeeding stuff. And one of the things that I kind of, plop onto their agenda is say, you got to clean up your birth practices because... You have to have that baby in good uh, shape to start that initial breastfeeding. And you can't do it if you do not let the mother take charge of her own birth. Agreed. Agreed. And, And I just think it's so important. You know, people think, oh, I... I know this stuff, or it's going to be okay, or that won't happen to me, or whatever. And I can't overemphasize to them that the more that you know, you know, knowledge is power, the more you know ahead of time, the more you are able to control some or many of these things. But Barbara, one of the things that I see that I struggle with, and I think patients struggle with, I really truly believe that there is a time and a place for interventions. You know, and I know, we've seen those horrific labors and those babies that wouldn't be out for three weeks if they didn't have a cesarean. We, we got that. But how do you help the mother to make some choices between, because here's what happens. Somebody says, your baby is in trouble. Your baby isn't safe. This is dangerous. How do you help her to figure out the difference between the dangerous and the, this is overblown, it, 
I, I can I can birth this baby myself. How do you walk that line, Barbara? I'll tell you what. That is that's something that no mother wants to deal with. She wants to rely on the medical people, and um, that's again why I say stay out of trouble by choosing your place of birth and your provider very carefully. Carefully, because then you can have trust in them. If you don't have trust in them, you know, you're scared to death. And I am a nurse. You are a nurse. When I was having my five babies, if they told me something, it was really hard for me to go against them. And then I was afraid that they were going to call social services on me and have them take away my baby because I brought a lambskin into the hospital and it wasn't sterile and I was putting my baby on it. You know? Yeah. yeah, that is something that I think that if you have a doula there, because how many people want to major in this stuff besides you and me, Marie? <laughs> Not very many, right? Probably. <laughs> Who wants to read all the research? Who eats all the research like we do? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's a good point, Barbara. <laughs> but, so the doulas are trained. Um, they keep up with the research. They remain educated. They're a good person to have to bounce off. Uh, your idea is like, how serious is it? And no doula is ever going to say, oh, it's not a problem, don't do it. They're right. going to help you with questions to ask so that you feel better. I have always felt, since I grew up as a doula, that shared decision-making by coming in, and um, and I have seen it done so beautifully, um, coming in and working with the parents and saying, this is not an emergency, this is the way we think it's going this is what we'd like to do. What are your thoughts? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, it, it's so, I, I really believe it informed consent, but I also know that when the woman is eight centimeters dilated and puking her guts out, that that's <laughs> it's hard. She, she's in the right side of her brain. She's not in the right. left side of her brain that, that yes. involves critical thinking. Absolutely. Critical thinking is 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 down the tubes. Uh, Barbara, also, I, I guess that this is what I would say. Uh, we've only got a few minutes left. If there were maybe three, uh, three big myths, and you listed 14 of them when I asked you on the show, uh, <laughs> quick, 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 just list the three biggest ones, and then we need to move on. What would you say were okay. the three biggest myths about... Uh, I'll go through these, and I will pick out three... And I'm sorry for my coughing. Vaginal exams. They're painful. They require mom to lay on her back. They can lead to premature rupture of membranes or breaking of the bag of waters, which increases the risk of infection. And um, they're done. They're subjective. And if they're done by multiple people, then you're going to get different numbers. And if it's done by somebody who causes you fear, your cervix is going to close shut. And I will say, read Ina Mae Gaskin's, uh, book on childbirth because um, that explains it all. So What's the next one? Exams, how often do they need to be done? Uh, maybe at uh, when she comes into the hospital and maybe when you hear her grunting for a while. That's it. Yeah. You do What's not need multiple myth? vaginal exams. What okay, would be the next so, um, Did you have something? I keep talking. I'm just trying to push you along a little bit here. What's the next myth, Barbara? (laughs) Okay. 
laboring in bed, you absolutely need to be up and ambulate, rock in a rocking chair. You Water is the midwife's narcotic. So if you can get in the shower, if you can get in a tub, get immersed, your labor is going to be a lot easier to deal with. Yeah, I agree. I said people to the shower, and I always tell them, you can take showers as many times as you want to. I don't have to do the laundry. Do it. (laughs) Oh, I love it when they go into the shower. I shove them in the shower. I'm terrible. (laughs) (laughs) And then I think think the most important thing is that if you're afraid, the hormones that help you give birth are withering away while the stress hormones are shutting down blood flow to the uterus and to your baby. And so... If you have fear of childbirth, I think it's very worthwhile to talk that over with whoever you can find who you trust and you can listen to and you can work out some of these fears because, you know, it's it's not an illness. No. Well, we're back to Grantley Dick Reed, 1952. Um, Yeah. uh, Childbirth without fear. Barbara, quick, quick, what's the third uh, myth that you would put at the top of your pile? Well, I was putting fear as that one, but... Um, oh, okay. Uh, okay. Uh, okay, I will talk about, um, you know, it used to be when women came into the hospital, they were pregnant, they had a head cold, they would break their bag of waters. It was right. so routine that you got a belly, let's break your bag of waters. It does not need to be done. There was a, a medical uh, educator in Detroit decades ago, a couple of decades ago, was offering the interns $50 for every baby born in an intact bag of waters. Wow. And, you know, sometimes they break on their own as they come out. But if you yeah. could, like, protect yeah. that baby and protect that mother from unnecessary routine interventions, you're going to have a lot healthier birth. Totally look agree. Happens, look what's happened since uh, the March of Dimes has gotten the medical profession to back off interfering with um, birth until after uh, 39 weeks. The cesarean right, right. rate has actually gone down. Well, what a surprise. Uh, you know, if you let nature take its course, what ama- isn't it amazing women actually can do this without the help of, of the, uh, the help that they don't need? Barbara, we've got less than a minute or so uh, for us t- for you to tell us. You're a pretty wonderful and interesting woman. We will have your book on my Amazon store, and people can find that by going to borntobebreastfed.com. We'll feature your book this week, but tell us, uh, how could we find you on the net? Um, I have a website, barbarahotelling.com, and I, I'm really poor about keeping it updated. But if you want to email me, email me at barbara at hotelling.net. Love it. That's exactly what we need to hear. Uh, you've been such an interesting guest. By the way, Barbara, I think you have bought yourself a chair at this kitchen table again here. Uh, <laughs> I think that we can have oh, a lot of... I love talking with you, Marie, anytime. Uh, a lot of, a lot of uh, discussions around this table, for sure. I'd like to thank <laughs> Barbara Hotelling, who has been my guest today. But that's all the time that we have. I'd like to thank all of you for listening to Born to be Breastfed. I'd like to thank Mama Va for... Uh, sponsoring this show today i'd like to invite all of you to come back next week and if you're interested in books or other media that was mentioned on this show or even on previous shows please check out our amazon.com 
com store. How do you do that? Visit Born to be Breastfed and you'll see the, the store. I'm happy to have anyone visit, but generally, if you're a parent, you'll want to visit me at borntobebreastfed.com for books, media, or my blog. I have at least one blog a week or whatever. Or you can check out our Facebook page. You're also welcome to leave a question for me or any of my guests, today's guest or anybody else. And by the way, please remember to like us on Facebook. And if you're subscribed on uh, iTunes, please just make the effort to move over there and rate us. That helps us. We're always looking for that. If you're a professional and you're looking for continuing education about breastfeeding and lactation, remember I'm your source for evidence-based practice at www.borntobebreastfed.com. I'm Marie Biancuso. I promise I'll help you to cut through the myths and clarify the facts about breastfeeding next Monday, same time, same channel. In the meanwhile, your baby was born to be breastfed. Have a great week. Thank you for tuning in this week to Born to be Breastfed. Please join Marie Biancuso next Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. This week, do what's best for you and your baby. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.